This week is, as I said, for those of you who were here right at the beginning, this is the beginning of what much of the church calls Holy Week. And uh, I'm, I was kind of thinking that, that, you know, it draws on my old Anglican roots of many years ago. And uh, I have a, f- a feeling and a sense and appreciation during this week that there is a, a sense of pilgrimage. And in fact, Fliss and myself, it it feels as if we've been on pilgrimage for about two weeks and we bring greetings to you from all the churches, the vineyard churches in the, the south central area. Of course, we oversee that area. And then yesterday we were at, with all the Thames Valley churches. And then last Sunday, and I understand I missed a great Sunday, shucks, here. But I was at um, St. Paul's uh, on Hatfield Road. I was preaching there. So greetings from all of those guys. But I must say it's good to be home. It's good to be here and to be together at the beginning of this week. And, and just by way of sort of setting the scene, and, and this morning is going to be a, a, a kind of a leisurely walk through three stories, one after the other in the scriptures, and I'm looking forward to just almost, as it were, kind of sitting down around the, the fireside, if you can imagine that, with all this electronic equipment here, and just sharing, you know, cracking open God's word and and sharing that together. But I think I want to preface it by saying this, that, that this week, as far as Jesus is concerned, and in his, his story, is, you know, it could be titled to hell and back. You know, this, this day, much of the church calls it Palm Sunday, has a great sort of sense of achievement and vindication, and, and at last people get it who Jesus really is the hope of Israel, the kingdom to come, the Messiah, the the anointed one, the one who is coming to rescue Israel. And and we will see that as part of the the little walk through the scriptures, how suddenly it seems as if people get it. But of course, as many of you know, it didn't finish there. What could have and maybe should have in many uh, minds have gone on to be, you know, a triumphant welcome in Jerusalem and, and the throne of David, David re-established in, in, in a recognizable manner. In fact, it goes horribly wrong, or so it seems. And of course, on Good Friday, and indeed this Friday we call Good Friday, Jesus actually ends up not on a throne of gold, but if you like, if you will, on a throne of wood, the cross, Lifted up, but not in glory, but lifted up in ignominy, punished, a, a visible warning to all who would, you know, uh, go against the Roman authorities and the religious authorities, punished as a criminal. And in fact, this, this Friday, and we're, we're currently, over the last few years, we've done this sort of every other year, we're going to be uh, here, I think it's 1.30, it is on the sheet somewhere, uh, is it 1.30 we're showing the film? Can somebody confirm that or otherwise? Is it 1.30? We're going to be watching the, what has to be said a very harrowing film. Many of you will be familiar with it. Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. And it's grueling. I, I do not enjoy it. But it's, I, I believe it's good for me every couple of years to sit through that. So 1.30 here. But I, I, I do have to say this to you folks... Um, we are subject to all the laws of this land. We have to get a special license to show this. This is R-rated, and you cannot bring your kids to it. 
I'm sorry, they can't, we can't even have them playing around with a few bricks out there in the atrium. This is not the kind of thing that you want to show the kids, and by law we're not allowed to let them in. So please understand that, and don't get cross with me about it. It is just the, the manner of the license. It is, if you know the film, very graphic, but I think it does as good. So we will be, we will be spending that two or three hours on Friday just kind of dwelling on that, But of course, the story doesn't end there. Of course, next Sunday, you know, the clocks will have got used to the time change. We'll all be back here and we'll have a rip-roaring celebration. A celebration of of the risen Christ, Jesus, who is alive. Not was alive. You know, our devoted master who left us a wonderful book and the teachings of Jesus. We have all of that, but we have a person who is alive by his spirit now. And that is the reason why the church of Jesus Christ is so, so, so energetic today, so virulent, if you like. We usually talk about a virulent virus, something that seemingly cannot be stopped. But the church of Jesus Christ, in every part of the world except the West, I hasten to add, is actually extraordinarily vibrant and alive. They estimate now that 10% of all Chinese are Christians. A third of the world's population is in India and China, and the church is in a time of revival everywhere but other than the old world, Europe and North America. I mean, North Americans regard themselves as new world, but we are, we are suffering a difficult time, a, a season in some areas of the church of decline, but everywhere else, we are, it is rip-roaring away. We need to remind ourselves of that. There is an inherent, inherent and irrepressible life to this message of, of Jesus, his death for our sins and his resurrection. And this is a good week to sort of reflect upon that. Something else I would want to say is that, interestingly enough, the early church, not many people know this, but certain thinkers in the early church tried to play down the cross. They were so into the victory and the triumph of Jesus that it was almost like, you know, a bit of an embarrassment. Yeah, let's, let's play down Good Friday. You know, you know, Palm Sunday, wonderful. You know, Easter Day, great. But, oh, that was a bit of a, bit of a bad day on Friday, wasn't it, you know? It's a bit like your favourite celebrity, you know, favourite Hollywood film star, if you have such a thing, who it suddenly, suddenly in some sort of tacky magazine, there's a little expose that when they were a, a poor, you know, jobbing actor with very little money, they did a, a saucy photograph or something, and it's incredibly embarrassing, and all the publicity agents try and suppress that and get one out, one out of the way. The church at one point, for a very strange reason, wanted to suppress that, that naughty, horrible ugh, Easter, you know, for our Good Friday thing, because yes, we're on the power and we want the power and the glory. But you know, Jesus, and as we transition into the, into the word, which is around about Matthew 10 and onwards, Jesus was absolutely focused on the fact that he had to go to the cross In fact, where we pick up the story this morning, he has twice already, and he will refer to it again in one of the readings this morning, he has told the disciples, watch my lips, I am going to the cross. 
for the sins of many. And some of them just fell quiet, not knowing what he was talking about. Others just didn't want to hear it. No, 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 please don't say that, it scares me, Daddy. But for Jesus, if he had not been to the cross, it would have been a failure of his mission. It would have been an extraordinary anticlimax. He doesn't see it as an embarrassing dip, a weird diversion where things went a bit pear-shaped for a day. He sees it as being lifted up so that he may draw all men to him. Fliss and I, uh, in February, had a bit of a disappointment. I don't think I've told you this, I'm not sure, but when we can afford it, in February, we jump on an easy jet and we go to the Mediterranean just for a weekend. And last two or three years, we have managed it by hook or by crook, and we go to Nice. And uh, it can be genuinely, generally relied upon to provide wonderful sunshine and, you know, lovely, lovely meals in little street restaurants and great fun and very relaxing, really lifts our spirits. Well, this last year in September, I went online on a particular sort of stormy night and I found this hotel right down on the beach, very nice hotel, we, we actually knew it. And man, it wasn't cheap, but, but we thought, well, we'll... We'll push the boat out and we'll book in there. And so we did. Beautiful hotel. We booked the flights. And all through the winter, the darkest winter and miserable winter we've had, we've been, we're looking forward to this trip to Nice. Have I told you this story, by the way? Okay. And so, uh, <laughs> I don't want to waste time, you know. So anyway, the great day comes. And, and uh, Fliss and I, we... we Bob over to Luton in her little micro and we put it into the airport's short-stay car park and we get on the, the, you know, the bus and we go to the airport and you know, we go through all that security and yes, I lost my shaving cream, my scissors, you know, all my sort of wash things get consec- confiscated and the usual game. We finally, we get into the lounge, we sit and we have a coffee, we buy a magazine, Lights well, called a little bit late but we Eventually get called, we go to the gate, we walk across the tarmac, up onto the plane, get buckled in, go through all the security things, the plane begins to back out from the dock, we move off down towards the runway and we're beginning to pick up speed, we're not on the runway yet but we're nearly there and suddenly the whole plane goes, and I thought that didn't seem good. And I thought I'm not going to get agitated about this. Just chill out, Chris, you're on holiday. Anyway, we sat there for a little while, and then the captain came over the uh, radio and said, uh, folks, I'm really sorry about this, but they've had a freak snowstorm in Nice. <laughs> freak snowstorm. And they've shut the airport down. We're going to have to go back to the departure lounge. And so I'm thinking, oh, no, you know, there's a great sigh on this airplane. And, and then I just thought, well, you know, whatever, whatever, it doesn't matter, we'll, we'll read magazines for the rest of the day, we'll, you know, we'll, tonight we'll be eating, you know, some wonderful French meal in a little restaurant we know tucked around the back just at the foot of the castle. Just chill out, Chris, it'll be fine. What I hadn't taken into account was that foolishly, I had booked us on the half-term weekend. 
Now, we, our kids are all grown up and having kids, you know. We didn't need to go over the half-term holiday, but by accident I booked on the half-term holiday. So actually, it went from bad to worse. Because once we came off the plane, you know, 300 people went rushing to the EasyJet desk to try and get another flight, but there were no flights. Because they were all booked up with lovely folk like you, <laughs> who were taking your holidays in Nice that year. And uh, in fact, the earliest we could get a, a rescheduled flight was going to be Tuesday, which was uh, 24 hours after Fliss and I were supposed to be back at work. So people were getting aerated, you know, they were getting cross and beginning to throw litter bins around and Fliss just looked at my, we looked at one another and I said, darling, I don't think we can fix this. And Fliss said, well, what should we do? I mean, should we try and go somewhere else? I said, you know what, I need to think, I wasn't actually feeling very well, to be honest, as well. So I said, I think we just got to go home. So back on the shuttle and, you know, back to get the car out and, of course, they had to dig it out of a great big sea of cars and... That night, we ate a curry in a restaurant in Hatfield. <laughs> oh, joy. Oh, joy. I, I think I've painted the picture deliberately in order for you to, to try and catch and to participate in that sense of anticlimax. And for Jesus, if he had been denied the cross... If for some reason he had not gone to the cross on Friday, if some other curious chain of events had clicked him, which meant he, had to, he was able to bypass the, the cross, there would have been a groan in heaven. It would have been an extraordinary anticlimax for Jesus. Because he has set his heart, his mind, he is leading his followers to Jerusalem in order to die on the cross for the sins of the world. Some of you know this. You've been Christians a while. Some of you are just beginning to explore this whole thing. But it is him dying upon the cross, being substituted for my sin and your sin. That means that 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 price being paid by him on the cross, that you and I can come home to the Father, Father God, and to begin to even dare to say we know God, and at his invitation be, be known as sons and daughters of the Most High God. It's an extraordinary thing. Still sends shivers down my spine now. So all of that is by way of a rather prolonged preamble to what we're going to read now. So if you, it's going to come up on the screen, but um, let's, uh, let's begin. I'm calling this talk, for want of something else, The Ascent of Jesus. And there is a sort of slight play on words there. But uh, let's, let's begin this, this read-through of a number of verses here. It's, I'm going to read it fairly consecutively by, by turning to... Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Let me just pray. Father, as we look at your word, we pray that you would speak to us. The words of men and women are all very well, but it's our heart and our desire, if you would do this for us, that you, Lord God, would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 35 
of chapter 10 in Mark's Gospel. Then James and John, a couple of the followers, disciples of Jesus, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. They said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus says to them, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? We're going to have a little ministry time at the end of this, and and I'm going to invite people to come forward and do this occasionally during the worship time. And I'd invite you now, if, if, you, if you get bored with what I'm saying, to at least consider what... If you were standing in front of Jesus and he said to you, what do you want me to do for you? What would you ask him for? And it's very important when, when invited to answer that kind of question to understand who's asking the question. You know, uh, I've always tinkered with cars and... I can remember Sam, my son, coming out when he was six, maybe five or six, and he said to me, Dad, what can I do for you? He wanted to help. And I got him to do something. But I couldn't say, well, listen, it would be really great if you could change the transmission while I I just sort of whipped down to Aldi's or something. I, I couldn't ask him to do that because it was beyond him. But, you know, there have been occasions when... You know, when I first met uh, Bishop David Pitches, when I first met John Wimber, the founder of this movement, and they said, well, what do you want? What can I do for you? Uh, There's a a difference, isn't there, then? So when you are standing before Jesus, as James and John were, and he says to them, what can I do for you? This is a moment to think carefully. And this is what they come out. They replied... Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. That's an interesting question. Jesus teased it out a bit. He said in verse 38, he said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now, they probably looked at one another at that moment and went, huh? Huh? Actually, Jesus, there isn't time to unpack this now, but Jesus is, is speaking spiritually, he's speaking prophetically here. He's making a reference to the prophet Jeremiah who said that we would need to drink the cup of God's wrath. And the baptism alludes to dying and being raised to life again. And so I'm sure James and John, just as I would, maybe you wouldn't, but I would have just gone, huh? Huh? But anyway, they decide to go for it, so they sort of say, uh, yeah, we can. Jesus then says, somewhat ominously, he says, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But, <laughs> to answer your question, guys, to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, when the other disciples, the ten, heard about this, they were indignant with James and John. They, Jesus called them together, decided to give them a little sort of on-the-job training, a little lecture, because there was a bit of, you know, James and John had tried to steal the march on the other guys. The other guys were realizing that there was a, a people movement beginning to build here. There was some momentum building in Jesus' campaign. They could almost touch, they could almost taste, they could almost feel the glory 
Three years of hard graft, but now Jesus was riding a wave of popularity. They were going to Jerusalem. This was going to be the moment where there was payback. Where they all got good jobs in Jesus' new administration, shiny Ford Mondeos and a nice expense account. Thank you. It's all been worthwhile. So the other followers, the other disciples, were a bit ticked off with James and John because they saw it as a bit of a play for position. One of the problems here, and this is a theme that Mark picks up in the whole of this gospel, is spiritual blindness. You see, James and John and the other disciples still, after three years of walking with Jesus, haven't actually got it yet. They still haven't grasped who Jesus is, really. It's coming, and there's glimpses of lucidity and understanding, but it's not always there. They tend to default to fleshly ambition and positioning and all the rest of it. I would say I'm probably in that place. I've spent, you know, I've been a disciple, a follower of Jesus for now 30 years now, and I'm beginning to get a bit of a handle on this. And some of the time I can do pretty well, but there are those days when I default to the old Chris, who's ambitious, who's insecure, who wants to steal the march on someone else. And James and John are in that place. And when the Son of God, Jesus, said to them, what is it you want from me? They could have actually asked for something better than merely good positions in his new administration. But they didn't get it. They didn't understand. Jesus mentors, takes this as a mentoring moment, and he says to the disciples, verse 42, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Now that's just what James and John were thinking about. That's why Jesus begins the mentoring session with that, where the disciples are. That's why they're indignant. They didn't say to James and John, you don't get it, do you? Jesus is king, he's the Lord, he's going to go to the cross. They were all cross with one another because of, as I said, this ambition but Jesus then retools, retrains, redefines what leadership, true leadership, true authority in God's kingdom looks like. Verse 43, he says, not so with you. Not so with you. So put all those thoughts out of your mind. Not so with you. He says, instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And here we have it, verse 45, the third prophetic insight, statement of Jesus that he is going to the cross, that it's going to take, at least in the world's eye, a peculiar turn. And he says this, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is an absolutely key verse in Mark's account of the gospel. It is one of those verses around which everything else swings. The reason the Son of God, Jesus, came was to give his life as a ransom. 
That is as true in the 21st century as it was then. Jesus came to pay the ransom. You know, kidnaps, ransom, all that kind of thing. Jesus came to pay the ransom price that I can walk free, that you can walk free. Whatever your background, your understanding, your, your experience, your parenting, your ethnicity, your age, your intellectual ability or otherwise, your academic prowess, or it, put that all to one side. Our lives have to be ransomed. And Jesus came to ransom us. He paid the ransom in himself on the cross. So there you are. That's the first little story. Three stories we're going to be looking at here. A little bit of mentoring of the disciples. But the, you know, hold that thought, the ransom thing. Hold the spiritual blindness thought. Hold the journey thought. And now let's go on to the next one. This is a lovely story, this. One of my favorites in, in the in the in the scriptures. It's actually the last healing that Jesus does in Mark's gospel. It goes on to say, verse 46, then they came to Jericho and as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road begging. And when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was in town, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, fellow, on your feet. The very people that have been smacking him around and telling him to shut up are now saying, oh, well, <laughs> yeah, the master wants you, come along. You know. It's like some sort of maitre d' at a restaurant who is a bit cold-shouldering to a, a wealthy customer, and then suddenly somebody says, don't you realize that's the CEO of General Electric? And suddenly he's, oh, sir, how lovely to see you. I didn't recognize it. Oh, do come in. So one minute they're saying, shut up, Bartimaeus, you smelly old beck. What? You what? Oh, <laughs> oh sorry. Oh, do come along. I love this sort of obsequious turnaround. It's so human. And then Jesus asks him the question, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't it interesting? It's exactly the same question as he asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? He goes on to say, the blind man said to him, that's Bartimaeus, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now there is a deliberate contrast that Mark is wanting to make here. There's the disciples who should have known better, but actually hadn't got it yet compared with Bartimaeus, who is a blind, ignorant, smelly beggar, who does get it. You see, when he heard what Jesus was in town, he wasn't going to be put off, because he saw Jesus as the son of David. He saw him as the heir apparent. He saw him as the king of kings. And he wasn't going to let this moment pass by, and it didn't matter what people said to him. You see, he could see before he could see. Got it? He had 20-20 vision 
when it came to Jesus. This was the creator of the universe and he was walking by me? Do you think I'm going to shut up now after all these years? No way, Jose. He had faith. And Jesus loves faith wherever it can be found in whatever package it is. If it's faith in him, the living God, he loves it. He's drawn to it. He'll stop along the way when he comes across it. So Jesus calls Bartimaeus over and he says to him, what do you want? Rabbi, I want to see. Jesus says, your faith has healed you. You're putting your faith in the right place. And actually, the the proof of the pudding is almost in the throwaway line at the end there, where it says, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. You know, that wasn't always the case. Jesus healed people, and they went off to have a party with their mates. Sometimes they even forgot to say thank you. They were so preoccupied. They'd spent years thinking, if ever I get this sorted out, I'm going to go down that bar and I'll have a nice cold one. And then I'm going to party. Or whatever. But this man, he followed Jesus. You see, the faith was already there. He followed Jesus. I love this story. The blind man who sees. And Mark is trying to paint a picture here. It, it's, this is an upside-down kingdom. That's not my phrase. It's been well used by many. This kingdom is different to the way the world, even in the 21st century functions. It's upside-down. But then we come to the the third and last story here, Palm Sunday. Now, it might help you to know, if you don't already, that Jericho is one of the lowest, I think it actually is the lowest city on God's earth. It's about 800 feet below sea level. It's a hot, arid, dry place. And the pilgrims would come through Jericho, and then there was a long struggle up towards Jerusalem. It was a hot, dry, dusty road, path, track. And, and in some ways, that long slog up there just kind of helped people to focus. There wasn't much chitter-chatter on the way up because you were just doing the hill. Jerusalem is 3,200 feet above sea level. It's a fair old walk, particularly when you're not on tarmac paths. But you crest at the Mount of Olives, if I've understood it correctly. And suddenly as you crest, there she is, laid out before you, the holy city of Jerusalem. Many of you I know have visited. I've never done that. But to this day, it still has something about it. In those days, and it's difficult to communicate in the 21st century, it was everything. It was much smaller. In the center of it was the temple. An extraordinary feat, a wonder of the world. But more than that, it was the place that God had said he would meet with people. 
It's where he would deal with their sins, where they would experience the presence of God. So it was an extraordinary experience to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem in those days. And so the followers of Jesus, they trudge up this well-worn path, probably with many others. And as they crest, there is a natural, oh my goodness, to see Jerusalem glinting in the sunshine. A great elation, the endorphins kick in. And actually it was not uncommon in those days for the teachers of the day that came out of the rural areas, the many messiahs that were around, to, to then start to get together and their followers to do a little bit of a jig and a dance and all the rest of it. But there was something different about Jesus. There was something special. It doesn't actually say it in Mark's Gospel, but, but actually... It does say that they cut down branches and what have you. Let's read the story and then I'll make one or two comments before we close. Chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethlehem and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. Just as you enter it, you will find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why are you doing this, tell him the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. And they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied a door in a doorway. As they untied it, someone did say to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they answered, As Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve to stay the night. It's difficult, really, to convey the enthusiasm and exuberance. I actually spent a fair amount of time this week looking through old film clips, because I thought, maybe I can show a film clip. We often do. But there was nothing, actually, that, that seemed to me to capture the joy and the exuberance. But what was extraordinary about Jesus' entry was actually what, the, what was happening amongst the... the the followers, it was as if suddenly they all knew who Jesus was. They were all like blind Bartimaeus. They all suddenly got it for an instant that Jesus is king. And so they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not an uncommon phrase or salutation in those days. But what they went on to say was subversive. What they went on to say was worrying to the authorities. What they went on to say was very threatening. They went on to say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Mark reports this, the others don't. But this is a manifesto. This is saying, Jesus is the king. The king is coming to town. God's kingdom is now. We are living in the days where God's kingdom will be re-established. And the cutting of the palms and the laying downs of the cloaks, you only did that with royalty. It was unique. It was a sign of, you know, 
laying down before the one who is the king. And it was as if for a few hours, minutes even, the whole world and his dogs saw that the king was coming to Jerusalem. We haven't got time to look at more of this. I, I hope that you might be encouraged in this week of pilgrimage, if you like, to read on this story and read it in the other accounts. In this account, it almost feels like anticlimax because it says that, you know, after all that, Jesus comes into the temple and has a look around, then goes home for his tea. Uh, what? But actually, of course, there's more to it than that. Jesus has true vision. Jesus comes into the temple and looks at the affairs of man and what they've made of faith and religion in his day. And the following day, I won't spoil the story, you, things happen the following day. Things that again upset the authorities. But this whole business of spiritual journey, of blind eye seeing, is just as important today as it was then. It is of critical importance that we understand and begin to understand who Jesus is. He is the Lord of all creation. And since his death and since his resurrection, we can call him our friend. We can say, I know Jesus. And we can come into his presence. And as always, he asks, what do you want me to do for you? And I think this is a season where we might get past the, oh Lord God, let me do well in my interview this week, prayer. Ask it as well. Oh Lord God, may my kids get into the school of my choice, prayer. Oh Lord God, help me find a parking space, prayer. We might we might find ourselves, and I'm not knocking those prayers, if that's where you're at, ask them. But let's aim a little higher today, this week. Let's be like blind Bartimaeus, who want to see Jesus, who want to rub the grit, the dust, the, or the, the, the mess of the 21st century, out of our eyes, let's ask Jesus to open our eyes to see him and his kingdom among us in a holy new light. Amen? Amen. Let's just pray.